Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> Star Trek Beyond. My dad joined Starfleet because he believed in it. I joined on a dare. You joined to see if you could live up to him. You spent all this time trying to be your father. Now you're wondering just what it means to be you. It isn't uncommon, you know. It's easy to get lost in the vastness of space. There's only yourself, your ship, your crew. You really want to head back out there, huh? What the hell is this? They're boarding us. Abandon ship! My God. I know why you're here. Why we are all here. Our captain will come for us. Mercy will be the last thing on his mind. I am counting on it. We're back on the bridge to discuss the latest from a series of films that are either going from strength to strength or plummeting into a bottomless pit of mediocrity, depending on whom you ask. Joining me on the Enterprise are Sharon Shaw. Hello. Karu Nagisa from Sequentially Yours. Hello there, Captain. And Brendan Agnew of the Day One podcast. Greetings, fellow Earthlings. Both of whom were on our Wrath of Khan and Into Darkness shows. And joining us for the first time, a man whose voice you may remember from our Batman v Superman show. He was reading, it was in the Ultimate Edition, he was reading a, uh, a very earnest essay in the middle of the show where he actually put, you know, sh shed some positive light on it. Mr. Eric Jones of the Deacon's Den blog. Yep, that's correct. Thank you for having me. I'm glad there are no transporter malfunctions. <laughs> Star Trek Beyond currently holds an 83% freshness rating on Rotten Tomatoes, a number likely to go down over the next few weeks, bearing in mind that Into Darkness has 86% and Star Trek 2009 has 95%, yet Beyond is being widely touted as the good one. Tonight we're going to discuss the various new approaches that this third film takes and try to ascertain why this has been received more warmly among long-time Trek fans than the first two. I'm going to start with a question that I sought the literal answer to on YouTube, only to find a bunch of very one-sided arguments that still didn't answer the specific query. Why do people hate J.J. Abrams? And that's an open question to the group. Just whatever you think might be the reason, give us what you got. I'm not sure that people hate J.J. Abrams. I think that J.J. Abrams excels at making very widely, broadly focused films that appeal to a mass audience. And people who are very much into whatever he is doing don't necessarily like that it's not focused on their wants and needs necessarily in the film. I would argue that some of the dislike for Abrams stems from the fact that his particular approach to filmmaking deals heavily in mining nostalgia in a way that feels personal to him, but doesn't always serve the interests of the story. I think that's why Star Wars is arguably his best movie, because the themes of that film hew very close to 
what he's doing textually and with the stylistic approach to the movie. But with something like Star Trek, I think a lot of people felt that he was pulling grab bag references and bits and characters and maybe exaggerating them without fully realizing why people found them appealing in the first place. And that didn't work for some people. His career path actually is just pretty interesting. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm not going to use that no, no, you yeah. no, no, you can say, like, the only reason that I will call you to account if you say it's interesting is I say, so what do you guys think of the career path of J.J. Abrams? And then there's a long silence and one of you says, it's interesting. I gotcha. At which point I'll say, why? <laughs> I got gotcha. Carry on. I've actually been a fan of Abrams for a while. I watched his show Alias with Jennifer Garner. I'm mm-hmm. a huge fan of that. When he broke into films with Mission Impossible 3, like Brendan was saying, he's good at mining that nostalgia. Mission Impossible 3 is about the one of those movies that kind of feels the most like the original show to me. And so he's particularly good at that. He, when I think about when Super 8 came out and people were touting him as the as the new Spielberg, which is which is what that film, you know, kind of felt like. It felt like old school A.D. Spielberg. Once Star Trek hit, it felt like then all of a sudden everyone just felt betrayed. I guess you could put it like that, because. Um, oh, hang on. That, that happened at different times. Uh, Super 8 came out in 2011. Star Trek was in oh. 9. The trepidation people were feeling in 09 was magnified with Into Darkness. There was a lot of kind of, well, he's lost it now. Definitely. And so. You have Star Trek 09, and some people didn't like the rebooting. A lot of people don't. You have Into Darkness. People didn't like the references, the the remake of it. So I just think that as we now come to 2016, people, well, we all know how a lot of fan culture can be these days. It's you're the best until we decide we hate you. <laughs> For me personally, I think there's a, a bit of a sense of he's everywhere a bit more than he actually is. The fact that he's been given a number of older properties to have a go at, Mission Impossible and Star Trek and Star Wars, and Super 8 kind of feels a bit like a reboot of the 80s Spielberg universe. Mm. So I think a lot of people have the feeling that he's taking over everything that they love, even though that's patently not the case. But he does have a particular style. It's not so much that it, that everything he does feels the same, but you can tell it's his. He's an auteur, but by that rationale, everyone would hate Scorsese because he's an auteur. I'm not wildly keen on Scorsese. Yeah, but not because he's an auteur. No, no. But I, I, for a lot of people, that's possibly what it is about Abrams that they, they feel uncomfortable with. Mm. The phrase we used uh, earlier when we were looking at it was that he gets given these projects. Like he's just sitting at Abrams' mansion going, mm, what new projects do you have for me today? Oh, the people from Paramount have sent this offering. And you know, he sort of looks at it and goes, mm, a Star Trek, I may do it. And he, he's worked his ass off since taking care of business and regarding Henry. He's maybe my... Uh, second, third favorite director. I think it's, it's it's like I love Tarantino, but Tarantino's directed a lot more films that I outright hate than Abrams. I, I, I've loved every single one of Abrams' actual films. Not so hot on him on TV. I actually looked on Reddit for reasons why. We also looked on YouTube for reasons why people might not like J.J. Abrams. We were looking for a balanced, rational, sober argument. We didn't get that by and large. It's a lot of vitriol. Somebody actually had the temerity to say his films were all style and had no heart. We watched Super 8 again today, and it's just tear-jerking from beginning to end. 
like you know, not the whole way through. It's also hilarious, but like there are just so many of these moments which feel really natural to the story, and really just just hit home each time. The idea that he his films have no heart is manifestly not true. <laughs> Attack other things, but don't say it has no heart. No heart, motherfucker. I'm, I'm all heart. Okay, he definitely relies on a certain box of tricks. If you watch the behind the scenes stuff on Star Trek, he's just behind the camera slapping away, just slapping away so he can get the shaky cam. And yeah, lens flares, he's a big fan of them. But if you go back and watch Die Hard, okay, watch Die Hard all the way through, then come back to me and complain about lens flares. Watch Jurassic Park and then come back and complain about lens flares. Yeah. That's what they did in the 80s. And there's almost a sort of a how dare he feeling. There, there was a lot of, you know, he's repackaging stuff from the 80s and sort of, you know, just all he's doing is stealing science fiction. I, I saw somebody say that Lost was just the prisoner meets Gilligan's Island. Uh-huh. And Alias is just La Femme Nikita. And Fringe is just the X-Files. There's nothing that exists today right now that is not something meets something. Because every single one of us, every single creator, every single person on this planet is influenced by what they've watched and what they've read and what they've loved. It's going to creep in somewhere. It's possibly just that Abrams is more overt. I'm also kind of bowled over by how great both Super 8 and Stranger Things are. They do pretty much the same thing. They deliver that Stephen King and Spielberg feel in a two-hour package and in a what? Seven, eight hours, eight eight hours package. Uh, extremely accomplished for both of them. We're, we're going to do a Stranger Things. Fairly certain we're doing that. And Stranger Things, praise to the high heavens. I've not seen a single bad thing said about that. Whereas Super 8, meh, J.J. Abrams, meh. I think one of the problems that people have with Abrams and the way he approaches his material is for bringing back the lens flares, the problem that some people have is that it feels artificial because he's doing a lot of that digitally instead of with Die Hard. Of course, it's all natural light, natural lenses. It, it was all really there, whereas he was specifically trying to create the feeling of a more captured photography style for the, the way he shot the Enterprise, which is why you have the lens flares that were created in computers. It's also the reason that you have a little bit more shaky found footage feel to some of the space shots or even the the handheld zoom in to find the image that kind of started in, I guess, Firefly and has become part of every damn sci-fi yeah. franchise ever. Like, seriously, look, look around for those sorts of shots that show up in Firefly all the time. They're everywhere now. Yeah. That, it's, but, it, it was yeah. originally Joss Whedon going like it needed to look like something like an accident going wrong at an airfare. Where it's like, oh my god, I wasn't really going to be filming this, but now I have to focus suddenly quickly because there is a plane falling out of the sky. Exactly. And so I, I guess maybe people don't like that it's artificially created, but it is part of what he's stylistically going for. Mm. The other yeah. thing that I've seen a lot of complaints about is the mystery box. Yeah, that's at the top of my list. Yeah. Uh -huh. He doesn't always use well. Sometimes he does, but sometimes he uses it for things that, well, frankly, we didn't need to know that there was a twist with Khan being Khan and Into Darkness. That could have been used for, you know, something else. I mean, I like mysteries and all, but when it's terribly obvious what it's going to be, don't just yank us around and be goofy about it, because then it just feels disingenuous to the story rather than you're trying to surprise us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, More to the point, the idea of the mystery box doesn't necessarily always have to be a thing. It's it gets to the point like with Shyamalan where we just expect a twist. Mm. I don't want to always expect a twist with J.J. Abrams. Sometimes you can just tell me a story 
And I'm okay with that. Although, interestingly, lot- <laughs> Shyamalan got worse when he stopped doing twists. It was a, He already started pretty low. I mean, it's not far to fall. Oh, it come really on, Sixth was. Sense. Sixth Sense was not that impressive to me. I liked Unbreakable. I loved Unbreakable. But Sixth uh, Sense was not impressive to me. Well, but you, folks, if you liked Sixth Sense, that show is coming very soon, as is Unbreakable. That, that, that's cool. <laughs> but no, no, the, the, the mystery box thing is it's something that his grandfather, uh, Mr. Mr. Kelvin, whose name turns up in every one of his movies, uh, told him, you know, it's very simple. I have a box here. You don't know what's in it. And he's used that with a hell of a lot of the uh, things that he's marketed. And it's extremely successful. People don't like feeling like they're being uh, manipulated overtly. All marketing is manipulation of some kind. But the mystery box is a very overt manipulation. Especially when he has no interest in concealing the fact that he uses it. Yeah, no, he revels in it. Yeah. So I guess you kind of have to either lean in and accept that about Abrams or forever hate him for it. That being Uh, said, one thing I think that people have actually turned a strength into a weakness when we're going back a little bit talking about the idea of Abrams as sort of mimicking the Sadie style. mm -hmm. J.J. Abrams is a directorial chameleon. The man can mimic any style he wants. And that actually, I think, is a strength in the sense that he can draw from a lot of different influences People try to turn it into a weakness when they say that he's just mimicking these things. But in reality, I think that actually is part of what makes him as strong of a director as he is in that he can do what he wants to do because he has such a good eye for what works and what doesn't and then can apply it. If you're going to apply that to Abrams, you kind of have to apply it to me as well. Fair enough. It's what I do. Nothing wrong with that. I actually believe that if you knocked me into the future or sent me to sleep for 10 years and then showed me a film that was by J.J. Abrams and said, right, who directed this? I go, oh, J.J. Abrams. In a second. He is an auteur. And while it may look like he's just mimicking Spielberg, there is a big difference between... Like, I, You couldn't tell me that Super 8 was directed by Spielberg. I go, it feels very... No, no. J.J. Abrams. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's Abrams doing Spielberg, but I'm very familiar now with the, the, the fingerprints of his techniques. And, and uh, like I said, the, 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 those fingerprints being so pronounced might piss people off more. Another one that turned up on Reddit repeatedly, and I understand this, is the lack of payoff for Lost which is writ large why the mystery box can end up as bullshit. I never actually saw the end of Lost, but I hear people didn't like it. I know roughly what happened. and There uh, was no way to end Lost. Yeah, there just no. wasn't. Well, the, the way, when Lost first starts, you, you assume a couple of things about it and the most obvious things, and then five seasons elapse, and then at the very end, it's like, yeah, you were pretty much right the first time. And it's like, well, why have we wasted five seasons? Were you entertained? Well... Yes, but then are you really gauging it on payoff versus journey here? Because ultimately, if Lost was ass, if Lost was crap to watch, I can completely understand why it's like, this better be worth it. And I think a lot of people probably got there. Sharon and I tuned out mid-season four, I think, which is a shame because we almost got to it at the end. Yeah. But I, I think I, I just watched- I, I got so frustrated with so many yeah. of the uh, the plot developments. I watched the whole thing, but the girl I was dating at the time, her father was obsessed with the show, so he used to throw parties um, oh. at the season entry and, and exits. So that's what kept me interested was that there was a social component to it. Yeah. And that actually made it a lot of fun. So I, I, I did not mind the maybe 30 or 40% of the show that was just complete bullshit <laughs> because it was fun to at least – we could have you know trivia contests when we were bored or you know try to tease out theories or anything like that. Mm. So – that that made Lost worth was the social component. I do wonder what Lost would have been like if it had been in the Twitter age. It was just a few years prior. 
ultimately Game of Thrones has that current crown as the, the show that everybody watches and talks about, and that if you spoil it, you die. I think if Trump spoils Game of Thrones, he's not getting in. <laughs> that's how that, that, someone said if Trump you know Trump could shoot me and I'd still vote for him is the average Trump supporters motto but if he actually spoiled Game of Thrones he's fucked oh so you can recreate Game of Thrones but don't spoil it oh um, it's also hard to lay all of Lost you know whatever you think of it at Abrams feet yeah, he's so much like he was involved with it but he wasn't writing it yeah Damon Lindelof and Carlton Cuse were mm. kind of running the show especially after the first season so i mean if you're going to blame someone it, he was he was busy making movies primarily at that point yeah and uh, as far as his use of the mystery box i think maybe the best use of it i ever saw was the way that they turned a huge revelation in star wars the force awakens into a throwaway scene that hit hard but wasn't built up to be a big thing which was finding out who kylo ren is and his yeah. parentage which they never they never have this big oh who's his daddy who's his daddy for like the whole thing they just throw away this line and like the audience that I was with was just like, wait, what, what, what? And it was so effective. <laughs> the giant rippling. Oh, moment. Mm. Yeah. Well, the significance of that is not who his parents are. It's how he feels about who his parents are. Yeah. Well, ultimately, there was no one to surprise with that in Star Wars. I mean, Han knew, Ben knew, Leia knew. You know, ultimately, if, you know, I suppose it could have surprised Ray. And Ray goes, oh my god, this person I've never met is the son of this person I've only just met. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, another thing, and this actually kind of ties in with Star Wars, seemingly playing fast and loose with the canon. This I can understand from Star Trek fans, the idea being that he's defacing their beloved history and that basically he's he's rerouted it and is making it so that this didn't happen. You know, it's now that Wrath of Khan can't exactly happen the way it did before because of the prior engagement with, with Khan in this. I can understand that. And one of my worst, most hated films of all time, you'll get to this when we review it, Chicken Little, because that was the film that Disney introduced to us when they decided, now nah, we're not doing 2D cell animation anymore. And it died. It came back briefly with The Princess and the Frog and Winnie the Pooh, and then it died again. And it's not coming back. And it is so bitter to watch Chicken Little, this nothing of a film, play out. And it's like, this is what you chose instead. So the idea of all this wonderful Trek continuity just going out the window and instead you get this very un-Trekky film to, to Trekky fans, it, it just would feel like insult piled upon insult, piled upon insult, piled upon insult. And I can understand how that kind of resentment would fester. But we are getting more Trek from the Prime Universe now, and I, I think that that was always going to happen. You can't just like put that much continuity to bed and just go, right, we're never going back there again. The reason to scrap it for the movies is because it's a completely different audience. So you've got this alternate universe for people who just want to go and come and watch a great space opera, and uh, then you've got the Prime continuity for everyone who lives and breathes Star Trek. And keeping those two alive side by side, I think, is a really smashing idea. That being understand. the case, it might be an idea for the people who hate these new movies to maybe just ease off the throttle a bit. Just just ease back. Consider that it, yeah, the thing you love is not dead and it's still there. And just enjoy the fact that Trek can appeal to more people than just the minority. I'd never understood why people were upset about that. And maybe it's because I'm a comic book guy and I'm used to multiverses and the idea of alternate continuities and what ifs and, you know, Elseworlds and all that. But I, it does not eliminate the canon. The canon still exists. Ghostbusters 2016 does not eliminate Ghostbusters 84. They exist. So I really just don't understand. 
I can kind of get the idea that maybe people are afraid that we were never going to visit the Star Trek universe that we are familiar with again, mm. which hopefully with the announcement of Discovery, that, that will put that to rest, we hope. And that'll be the but, first of many. They're, they're not going to abandon that prime universe. For the, but no, basically, if you not. want to get the fans back, that's what you need. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And you're right. I think people need to kind of back off a little bit on that. Just accept it for what it is. It's an alternate universe. It's still, thanks to Beyond It Now, has a lot of the same elements that made Star Trek what Star Trek was. Mm-hmm. And even to the older ones as well, the reboot, the other two reboot movies, it has a lot of those elements. It's been introducing them as it's discovering kind of where its feet are. And I think that, you know, we can enjoy that and not have to worry about it replacing our beloved Star Trek. Mm. The other thing I imagine to Sharon was, while you're watching your thousand hours worth of previous Star Trek, these, these, like this exhaustive archive of philosophy and moral dilemmas and uh, tricky situations and enormous casts of colorful characters, Firefly fans... Sitting there watching the same 13 episodes over and over again, going, someday, <laughs> someday. <laughs> oh, uh, that, that's painful just to think about. So, yeah, Star, Star Trek fans got it good. Yeah. The only reason that I really wanted to go into Abrams here is because there's a sudden turnaround on this third film. They're like, now this, this is how you do Star Trek. And I, I really, really liked it. I actually think I prefer the first two to this, which is going to, there are going to be people going, Why? It does everything so much better. It's it's a pretty narrow scrape for me. The um, I, I really like all three of them. The first two felt more like events, whereas this feels more like an episode. But I value it for what it is. I'm extremely glad that they did this because it doesn't always have to be super emotional, super significant. This got back to the spirit of Star Trek, and I think everyone seems to be responding very well to that. I am going to do the what? So that being said, what has changed for this third movie about the direction? Well, part of it is that Justin Lin is, he is both a more active director and a more controlled director than J.J. Abrams. I always get the sense when I'm watching Lin's stuff, even in the most exciting, movement-heavy, and he does a lot of movement sequences, he always knows exactly what shot he wants to present to us. And I think that he uses that not just to tell the story, but to give us really subconscious feelings of it. The beginning part, for example, when Kirk is basically talking about how bored he is and how episodic everything is, everything is centered in the frame. It is very structured, very neat in the same way that when you see all of his identical uniforms, the camera does the same thing to us subconsciously, and I love that about it. I would also say that Lynn's focus during this film, as it has been, and well, if anyone's seen the Fast and the Furious films, they'll kind of get this as well, is he's very much an ensemble director, and the first two Star Trek movies were very focused on Kirk and Spock. This movie, while it still has very strong Kirk and Spock stories, the focus on who's taking action and who reacts to things and who gets to do really big heavy lifting stuff in scenes it feels a lot more spread around. 
And so it, it, it feels more like the bridge uh, of these Starship Enterprises as opposed to just seeing a few of the people in focus on the bridge in terms of the story that, that he's telling. I can also add that just his action eye, not that Abrams doesn't have an eye for action sequences, but you know, with those Fast and Furious films prior to, you definitely can see where Lynn excels at staging that sort of scene, particularly the motorcycle scene about the end of the second act, beginning of the third. I look at, you know, I look at that and clearly can see it's like, okay, yes, you cut your teeth on Fast and Furious, which was actually a apprehension of mine going into this because I'm not a big fan of those movies. That first trailer really made it feel like that. But I do know that one thing that people do enjoy about those movies is that they do say that Justin Lin does know how to not only have the action, but he does also know how to frame the characters and provide a a character depth that a lot of action movies, a lot of sci-fi movies can do pretty shallowly. And he actually, he surprised me. That actually exceeded my expectations. So not only did I enjoy Beyond, but now I also might have to definitely go back and give the Fast and Furious series a uh, another go around. Did you see uh, five and six and seven? I did. I did. Yes. Okay. Uh, I loved. I, I. I really. I did enjoy five as the the big heist movie, and I did enjoy the sequences, the action sequences in that. I think what it was for six and seven. I think the emotional payoff that a lot of people do enjoy about those films, for some reason, it did not stick with me. Yet it did this time with uh, Beyond. So much of the the Fast and the Furious, like the Furious 6 and Furious 7 story beats that are emotionally driven, really rely on having emotional connections to 1 and 2 that 5 didn't rely on quite as heavily. But the, the Paul Walker tribute especially is not going to play quite as well if you weren't at least a little bit emotionally invested all the way back from the first movie. So I can see where that comes from. But it's it's very obvious that Lynn has a lot of affection for for Star Trek, as well as kind of a canny knowledge of how to use it to both subvert it and really enhance it. The very beginning sequence where Kirk is trying to broker a peace treaty, it feels like all of these different things at the same time. It feels very much the sort of Star Trek thing that the Enterprise would be trying to do in an exploration mission. It feels like Kirk is trying to grow as a person, even though we still see that he's got those brash kind of reckless edges that he had from the first two movies. And then it's also got a great visual gag that sort of is the reversal of the cute aliens that will eat you in Galaxy Quest, where it's the hmm. big kind of troll aliens that are super scary until you see that they're roughly the size of a schauser. That sounded, that felt like hitchhikers for me. Mm. It did, but it, I Unfortunately, I it so due much. to a terrible miscalculation in scale. <laughs> <laughs> but it's cool because scale isn't always constant. Mm-hmm. And it's such a great laugh when that little thing just props up in front of him and, and, and Chris Pine's look of utter incredulation on his face is like, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> Tore my shirt again. Yeah. Nice. That's okay. I have another. One thing I would say about um, Lynn's direction is that he is extremely good at creating a, a set of scenes that appear to be very disconnected from each other and, and feel very separate. And the fact that he took this this ensemble cast that, as you say, previously hadn't really been 
developed overmuch as an ensemble and then divided them up into teams. Now, that would have been very easy to, to read and, and to kind of come across as, okay, so we've got one thing that's going on over here and that's completely separate from this thing that's going on over here and that is entirely disconnected from this thing that's going on on the other side of the planet. But it, the way he cuts back and forth between them really gave you a, a set or gave me a sense of it being these sort of concentric circles that are moving on a spiral towards each other and that feeling of them being thrown wide but gradually moving back together again and that's something that that comes through very strongly in the Fast and Furious films but was used to really good effect here especially since a lot of the things people didn't like about the first two were the fact that it was very heavily focused on Kirk and Spock particularly Kirk, particularly the idea that, you know, this is this whole federation has basically come around to tell James T. Kirk how awesome he is. Yeah, it and, is his and, destiny. Exactly. And, and <laughs> He's got special blood. Felt very much oh. like him letting go of that. And whether it was a, a conscious decision to have that kind of transitional process for Chris Pine, where it's like, okay, right, as he's now growing into the Kirk that everybody felt like they were, not everybody, but people who, who didn't weren't overly keen on his portrayal of Kirk in the first two, one of the things they didn't like was it, he didn't feel like the Kirk of the series. He didn't feel like the person who was part of the team, who was the captain of a crew, and that that was something that he was very dedicated to. And you really had a sense of him actually maturing into that character now, whereas the first two were kind of sowing the seeds of that but not really letting it develop fully which indicates that as we suspected the end of into darkness actually had a profound effect on him he did grow up he did sober up he did take responsibility for his crew and i actually was really pleased the way that he is an unhappy man but he doesn't come off as a moany mopey teenager he's not like oh this isn't as fun as i expected it to be it was more the crown hangs heavy yeah, and that does actually make me appreciate more. In fact, if you remember when we did the Into Darkness podcast, one of the things I said I didn't like about it was the fact that you, you didn't really get much in the sense of consequence and his, his return to life was too quick. And not that that took anything away from the process of his sacrifice, because the decision to do it was the important thing, but you didn't get to see how that impacted him afterwards. Now you do, and it's pretty sizable. It makes for a really compelling window into Kirk's character that they, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm on record as saying that I really do appreciate the first movie and I have some problems with the second, but the way they use both films to effect on his character was one of my favorite things about this Kirk in that he is a year older than his father ever got to be. He started in Starfleet because someone said, I dare you to do better. And so his, his path right now is, well, I did but does that mean I've earned the right to outlive my father? What do I do now? You know, I've, I've literally cheated death and saved so many people. Is, is, there, is there anything left for me to, to do that will have meaning still? And that was quite that, – that was very – and it was never like really explicitly stated in big, long monologues or exposition dumps – but it was very clearly communicated by the characters and their actions and their, their brief interludes with each other. Yeah. And that's really how you do an ensemble piece like this, where we can still see, you know, Kirk, because we followed him so closely, we can see the results of the previous two movies and how things, especially the last one, and how things have affected him. 
But there are kind of two approaches I can think of. You can either do what you did in the first two movies, which was pick a focus character or two and then give everybody else a spotlight moment. Uh, Sulu is a great example. In the first one, it's the sword fighting. In the second one, it's him bluffing out Khan. Or you could do in this move what we had in this movie where characters are a little bit more fluid in the ensemble. They take the story is structured in such a way so that their particular skills are always useful in those situations. And they sort of come and go, and Kirk, as a result, has to take a back seat at times. It almost looks like a, leader, a leadership quality in him in that he knows when to delegate. He knows when he could step forward and say, all right, this is, it's time for me to be the captain and do something. And when it's like, all right, you guys are the best to do this. You do that thing, and I'm going to do this other thing that isn't necessarily as important. That's right on the money. The, there's a bit where they're right about to, you know, drop the needle, as it were. And Kirk is sitting there saying, OK, you do this, you do this, you get ready to do this, you do that. And it's very much the efficient leader as someone who knows how to delegate. And if anyone's ever, like, been in a leadership position where they've, you know, run a group project or run some sort of organization, then they know that that's that learning to do that is a possibly more worth, well, definitely more worthwhile skill than just knowing how to punch someone in a rubber mask. And it's more impressive when it's done right. Mm. We've got red shirts who could do the punching. Yeah. yeah. Not that I mind Kirk punching someone in makeup because this movie gave me that captain-y moment and Kirk punching someone in makeup. So yeah. I, I was very happy just all around. Balance. Mm-hmm. Okay. So this is kind of more of an extension of the, uh, the, the change in direction. I suppose, yeah, actually. The, so the next one, we can just sort of fold these other ones together. Approach, pacing, lighting, writing, music. How are these things changed for this third installment? Music was the thing that stood out to me the most, just because I've loved Michael Giacchino's score basically throughout this reboot. The new theme is one of my favorite movie themes right now. I absolutely adore it. And this is, I don't want to say the most epic score because there, he hasn't changed a whole lot, but it definitely seems like a much more distant score, much more out there score. The other ones, because they... We're very much centered on what we already know, especially focused on Earth. We're very bound to the Earth. It's a lot of very deep tones in the early ones, whereas this one has a lot of very much higher tone stuff in the soprano range. In fact, this one has a lot more vocals, like choruses and choirs in the background to it. Hmm. And I think it fits the exploratory vibe a lot more than it would have fit in any of the other two movies. And again, that's just Jachino knows how to write a score that fits with whatever the movie is. I think it's the going back on the score. I think the score is certainly <laughs> a bit more understated than the previous two films. I kind of think of it like like John Williams score for the force awakens. You don't have necessarily other than the, the main thing. It's you can't pick and choose moments where you're kind of like, you know, Oh, we, you know, there's this theme that I love. There's that theme that I love. It's, kind of blended all together which i would also which i would just assume is probably because you know this crew they've now been together i think it's what it's three years into their five-year mission so everybody's comfortable with each other everything is familiar kirk is familiar with everything and when it needs to have that moment you certainly will and i think the same i think a lot of it goes with same thing with a lot of this you know the the staging and the backgrounds other than the obviously big you know set pieces if there's one complaint, very light complaint that I have about Justin Lin's use of lighting is that there are just a couple of scenes that I think could have stood to 
gain a bit more of what Abrams brought to the the Enterprise bridge. Like after you know after the saucers crashed, and there's there's a night sequence where I kind of missed how easy it was to see a lot of things. But overall, I very much appreciated how Lynn takes a he guides you through the ship when Kirk is giving his monologue to show this is the Enterprise as it kind of should be, and everything's you know bright and looking new, and then you get to see the um, the the Yorktown space dock and get this great view of the sort of utopian enlightened Federation civilization. And then you see the enterprise later on that is dark and in shambles and feels broken and almost scary and alien. Mm. And I, you know, there, there are a couple of times where I, I wished I could see just a couple things more clearly, but just from an overall aesthetic and thematic sensibility for the mood he was trying to create, I really appreciate it getting to sort of turn that on its head and it felt i mean there's there's a lot of parts in both of abram's other movies where you see a federation spaceship is taking damage and it's like ooh, seeing the enterprise take damage just kind of always punches me in the gut because i have so much long history with that ship being a home but seeing what happens to it is really rough in star trek beyond and then seeing the aftermath of it is even worse yeah Uh One thing that I've, I've got to say, the introduction of Yorktown, I've now seen the movie twice, and it brings me to tears to watch it just because of everything that goes on. I love that introduction. It's so short, but it tells us kind of everything that we need to know and shows us what the stakes are in a few minutes. I love that the sort of almost ring worldy sense of it where there's different there's different gravities and different ways of is not just visual it plays into it lynn brings a really good sense of three dimensions mm-hmm. to it to this whole film where you get to see the enterprise also moving on many different planes of movement which i loved seeing as well and that's that's not a knock on jj abrams very few people recognize that in space there are three dimensions and you can use all of them Mm. lynn seems to kind of immediately grasp that and uses it to the most advantage particularly in yorktown i'm gonna say one thing or two things here i heartily agree with both of those previous points i was paying close attention to the lighting because i've just seen i gotta mention this every episode now because it's it's how not to do a movie the total recall remake where everything was in the dark and it's just it's horribly lit and it's practically monochrome. There's all the colors been drained out. And I just didn't give a toss about what was going on. And I was trying to work out, is this just poorly lit during the um, broken ship scenes? But when it comes down to it, Lynn was using like one major light source within each room. So he'd have something glowing a blue or red. And he'd move the camera around and you wouldn't see much. And then there'd be a person moving. And then they would be illuminated briefly by a strobe light or, or this blue glowing thing. And that would give you a bit more of a sense of this, the spatial dimensions that you were dealing with. But overall, the, the the nighttime scenes bugged me in terms of lighting in that I can't remember a single moment in either of the Abrams films where I couldn't see what was going on. I think the first time when you watch it and it's scary, that's going to have an impact. The second, third, fourth, fifth time, you're like, I just, I really wish I could actually see what was going on here. <laughs> that, yes, absolutely. You're right. It's- there are other things in the film where watching it on, on subsequent occasions, you're going to get annoyed that they didn't give you more information more on that later. But the other point is that I so agree on Yorktown. They managed to encapsulate in just a a few moments everything that Star Trek is for. They presented you with a colony out on the fringes of space that we have carved out of 
you know, we, we've brought materials to it and made it a habitat. We've made it a home. And all of these different species interacting and it's got this sort of beautiful Presidium Citadel. If you're a Mass Effect fan, by the way, this is the Mass Effect Star Trek crossover. <laughs> but but it, it gave you everything that we should be striving towards as a species. The ability to actually function out there in the black together. And it's unity. And it's everything that people felt might have been missing from the focus of the first two. So I hope that that, was, that resonated with other people. And, of course, that's the thing that gets threatened later on. That's the thing that's put into peril from people who don't see unity as a, uh, a survival, as key to uh, – yeah, as, as, as key to survival. Like the idea being that Kral appears to, to, to focus on the idea that just being alive is enough and that unity threatens that. It really did make it nakedly obvious that the, these Star Trek movies have been taking visual cues from Mass Effect. I, I would argue since 2009. Oh, yeah. But but this would very, very much so. This is one of those, please don't let anybody get away with this. Don't let anybody who praises this movie also complain about lens flares because there are plenty of them in this one, too. I mean, even Justin Lin does them. The movie opens with one. Mm -hmm. Just out from a lighting perspective, please don't let anybody say, complain about lens flares in one breath and then say that this movie was so much better, etc., whatever. It, there, there are plenty of them in here, and they're fine. They really are. Yep. <laughs> no got them. One thing that Yorktown really represented for me was a, an amplification of the speech that Commodore Paris gives yeah. to <clears throat> Kirk about out in space all you have is what you take with you and ultimately that's what Yorktown is it's it's when we go out in space and we reach out as a species we have to create home wherever we go and you, it moves from that being the Enterprise and yeah that opening sequence with the Enterprise being seen as it should be and Kirk just walking around and, and feeling very much at home in it it really felt like Next Generation for me because Next Generation was kind of my Star Trek, even though I didn't see it until quite a bit later than it originally came out on Sci-Fi Channel reruns or something. But that's what that felt like to me. And Yorktown felt like that's the next step. You take, you know, you, you bring this home with you and that contains you and the home that you keep within. And then you project that further out and create this space station, which is now, again, a home in the middle of the blackness. But it's, you know, a base. It's somewhere to come back to. On the note of Commodore Paris, the uh, actress playing her, Shore Agdashlu. Do you guys recognize her? I know no, she, was, she was in uh, X-Men 3... <laughs> She got the, the porcupine death hug. Yeah, she, from the bad hugger. Maybe one of the best performances in that film. She was also in Mass Effect 2. She was uh, Admiral That's Shalaran, right. Admiral the uh, quarian who uh, was involved in Tali's court case. She has one of the most fascinating, rich voices I have ever heard. I could watch a whole movie about this character just sitting in her office and then, like... Make a Deep Space Nine based around Commodore Paris. Being I could, I could watch that. Totally. I would watch that. Yeah, yes, yeah, so I, I really want to see her uh, in in more stuff. Can, uh, It'd be good to get one for New Century. That's a, that is a voice. <laughs> Next question: Dealing with the real life death of Leonard Nimoy. This actually must have come fairly late in their production, enough for it to not have been in the original script. I think. What, what's what's the actual chronology on that? When did when did Nimoy die? It was 2014. Oh, right. That he passed away. Okay. Maybe uh, then. Maybe it did entirely inform on that. It was incredibly respectful. It was incredibly poignant. You knew exactly 
what was being said without any words having to be uttered. And one of the highlights of the movie for me, it, it honored his performance and his heritage for the, uh, the series. Yeah. The other time I cried was at the end when young Spock was looking at the picture of all of them. Of Those were the two times that get me to tear up in this film. Yeah. It's just, it was so well done and so strongly performed without having to have long conversations about it. If anything, they avoided the conversation through most of the film yeah. due to one reason or another. And it was, it was wonderful. It really was. They did a great job of having Kirk and Spock say things to and about each other without actually saying a lot, which makes them feel much more comfortable as characters who have had a, at this point, years-long friendship. Because they have the, the moment in the turbo lift where they both want to say something and they can't quite bring themselves to do it. And you can see this this respect that they've got for each other. And then, and then later on, at the very end of the movie, you kind of pay off that moment. And they both echo the the more or less line where you can kind of see that they they're both having worked through something and they're both taking comfort in the other one still being there and them still being to rely on that person. It's a very sort of matter of fact way of approaching these characters that both respects the audience's ability to see visual storytelling and is also just ridiculously efficient in terms of not having to waste more time having people talk about their feelings at nausea. Mm-hmm. It also it helps that, that deliberately trying to keep the whole Kirk Spock relationship on the and the kind of like the, these guys are now partners they they know about each other enough to know that they care about each other we don't have to have them go through that again it it gives the other guys the the, the spotlight moments they need and as far as Leonard Nimoy goes well I mean we we talked about the last time we were uh, we were talking about Wrath of Khan how you know it it sort of adds this even deeper layer of, of resonance to his sacrifice. And the way the way that they use that without trying to really just harp on it with the characters, you just have this this moment of Spock standing alone in a frame and the frame is huge and it shows the vastness of space. And it's just boom. This is what he feels like without this character there. But it's also you know that there's this extra kernel of it for the actor because so much of what Zachary Quinto was doing was he'd actually gotten to have conversations with Leonard Nimoy and, and mm. sort of was very respectful about honoring what he was doing and working with this other actor to explore the character that he had created in the first place. Yeah. I think it does allow for an exploration of the other side of Spock's character though, because ultimately the the first two films do put a lot of emphasis on the suppressed emotion. And that was a very rare thing to be examined about Spock in the original series. It, it does come up, obviously, but it, it's not the way that character seems to lean. For most of the episodes, he's generally quite calm and, and rational about things, and the, the logical side of him is, is much more emphasised. And I actually liked the fact that it was... He is again being put into a very emotional situation, but he's responding with a more level head, which made me feel as though he was evolving more as a character, which really appealed to me because I, you know, if I, if I'm going to watch a series of characters that lasts and lasts and lasts, I don't want them to be the same the whole way through. You know, I don't want them to to lay out the stock of how these people are and how they're going to behave in chapter one and have them still be doing the same thing in chapter five and yet he still feels like the more emotionally volatile version of spock we knew from 2009 because he had that huge trauma of vulcan being destroyed and losing his mother and mm. so we've seen spock be just a little bit more free with his emotions because he sort of 
has made that choice. Like he made the choice at the end of Star Trek to stay with the Federation as opposed to be a Vulcan full time, if you yes. will. We get to see him grow while that's still being informed as a as a big part of his character. Absolutely. And also that kind of brings into question the idea of, of what it is that causes this this focus on logic and, and you know the suppression of emotions in the Vulcan culture. Is it a natural part of how they are, or is it something that is purely enforced in a, from a societal level? Now that that society is effectively gone, is Spock now freed up for the emotional side of him to, to come to the fore? And that's what I found really interesting about the fact that it was this more logical side of him coming through. It felt more natural because it was happening in a way it wasn't being reinforced externally. It also doesn't explore the same emotions that Spock, that when you put Spock in a he's experiencing emotions type situation, it's, it's different emotions that they're exploring here. We're not just seeing rage and sadness and loneliness and all these kind of negative things. We're also seeing bemusements. Mm. We're seeing humor. We're seeing all you were seeing other types of emotion from him that give him a wider range in this film that I quite liked. He also seemed to be enjoying messing with Bones as well, even though that, that shouldn't yeah. actually happen with Vulcans. He was just like, hmm. That's poke, 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 any, poke. <laughs> any ability to see more of Carl Urban's Bones is, uh, you know, is a huge win for me. I was just so pleased to get more McCoy. He's always been one of my favorite Star Trek characters. Frankly, if they said that the fourth one focuses on Bones, I would air punch. <laughs> yes. There's, there's so much greatness between Spock and Bones. Like, I think there's, there's maybe just a couple exchanges between them in Into Darkness, and in this they get to spend the entire movie together, which just made me gloriously happy. Yeah. Another thing that Justin Lin does that I noticed is you know, the series, the kind of three main characters, if you could call it that, were Spock, Bones, and Kirk. And every time two or more of them are on screen together in this movie, there's a shot from the side where the three of them or mm-hmm. two of them are staggered. So they look like busts almost of their nice. characters. Yeah. It's really kind of a nice visual thing to, again, stress that these three characters are very, very important to Star Trek lore and to the story, but not necessarily have to do it in such a way that it takes away from anybody else. They have always kind of been the, the heart, the soul and the head of the of the series in in you know very reductive parlance i guess yeah well they're the, God, they're the away you could just at least act like you care <laughs> Bloody uh, goblin if i may adopt a parlance with which you are familiar i can say that your theory is horseshit <laughs> on the other hand for bones to step up and get more screen time it felt a little bit like uhura who got less in into darkness got less here as well uh, especially with jayla being in there as well i can't really think of much that uhura has done in the past two films so it feels like that they they grabbed this character and was like yes we are going to present you with this brand new uhura in 09 and then they haven't really pushed her since then so if it was a bones and uhura movie next i mean Ooh. why not Honestly, yeah. everyone loves those characters, so why not push those two? The first time I saw it, I was a little bothered that the one time that they needed a translator, they just ran it through a computer. <laughs> like, you have oh, a so I guess I just character. got home then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, why does she exist again if you can just run it through the computer? I've got this thingy in my ear right now. <laughs> I did like seeing her get to be a little bit more physically active, where it's mm-hmm. just like, oh, yeah, you know, she can punch, no big deal. Mm-hmm. And then doing the, the bit where she... She's the one who separates the saucer, which kind of calls back the fact that 
yes, Kirk has sacrificed himself for his crew because Kral specifically asks her why she did that. She says, because he'd have done the same for me. Hmm. But as much as I like Zoe Saldana, I don't, I don't feel like she got as much to do as I would have liked. Hmm. On the other hand, I, I love the fact that Sofia Batella walks into this movie and feels like she immediately belongs to oh, yeah. this, this franchise and this crew. Oh yeah. Oh, so, so well, I just want to go back a second it just occurred to me as we were talking what Uhura's role in this movie is. And it is a communication thing. She is there to articulate the Federation side in arguments with Kral. Yeah. That, again, yeah. that's what they could really have focused on. The Since he's... Okay, I'm going to jump ahead to the whole Kral thing. Is it okay? I, sorry, did you have more to talk about? Like, can we just do this before we go to Jayla? Sure. Because it's about Kral. Sure. You find out the Kral's true identity way late in the game when it no longer matters. That's a weakness. And it's kind of like I, I, I whispered to you, Sharon, about halfway through. I was like, right, that's Idris Elba. Uh, as in, like, I, not, like, like, we haven't seen the, the captain, but the captain is Idris Elba for whatever reason. And then the for whatever reason was what I was sitting on for about an hour. And then it was like, oh, right, it's because of that. Okay, fair enough. And now whenever I see it again, I'll be like, wouldn't it have been really great if Idris Elba and Zoe Saldana had had two? One to lay it down, one to really follow it up with passion. Why are you doing this? Because the Federation, da, 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 and just like really lay down who the captain was, his motivations, why he would actually be kind of sympathetic from certain points of view. That was a missed opportunity for both of them. And it's a, it's a pretty long movie, but the, it feels like maybe one or two of the big action sequences could have been put aside for that. Yeah, okay. I, I could see that. It's uh, and The thing with Crawl is that he's basically, he's basically Hobbes, Thomas Hobbes. That's his philosophy contrasted with the Federation's humanism. And while it's very, I think it's well articulated throughout the film, I would have liked to see that confrontation directly and you could have used Uhura to do that. Yeah. Absolutely. Kral was, he was my favorite part of the film and yet the most frustrating for for those exact reasons. It's like real early in 09, you know, we got the idea of what Nero's motivations were. Mm. And once it was revealed that, that, you know, this is who he was and this is the grudge he holds. And I'm like, I sat there and I was like, oh my goodness, that was your opportunity to have a, a great villain or a great antagonist and you kind of blew it. That's kind of going back to like the mystery box. Mm. You know, they, you know, there were those clues throughout the film that there was something more to him that you, it's more than, than you expected. And when you, once you got that reveal and I was like, Oh my goodness, that was perfect. You know, it, he was, it, he's a soul, he's a soldier, you know, without purpose now kind of like how Kirk is wondering what his purpose is. And I just think there was so much interaction that you could have had with him throughout the film, even if he had one or two other scenes with Kirk where you kind of get that, hey, we're kind of the similar, we're kind of similar and what has happened to me probably will happen to you at some point if this is what you're, if you know, if this is what you're feeling. And once we got the reveal, I was like, oh, wow, he actually, there's actually something to him. There's something behind him, but you blew it because you just waited too long for that, you know, for that reveal. And mm. once it happened, I was just, okay, well, let's just move on. Let's just move on to the end now. Mm. 
Uh, the, I, the, they actually did kind of like she was speaking to him in in one language, and then it turned out he spoke basic English. Yeah. Like I'm just conceiving this whole scene in my mind for this first one where they're sort of like she's going back and forth, and they're talking about the Federation. It gets more irate, and then eventually he just bursts out with English, and that's the reveal that he at least does speak English. And then she, so she, you, he then goes away from that particular confrontation with who is he? So that then when he comes back for the second one, that can be revealed then and then you can really get the back and forth and back and forth. And this is actually the downside of what the Federation do and give him the kind of motivation where, you know what, dude's got a point. It, it is sort of a frustrating missed opportunity because once Idris Elba, you know, loses most of the makeup and crawl becomes a character, yeah. he becomes so much more interesting. On the other hand, I just wanted to point out something that I found really effective in the way that they, I think they should have moved up the reveal as it were. Oh, but yeah. one thing I found effective about the fact that it was a reveal is that they frame it at first as Kirk and the Federation and this sort of, you know, light of civilization and their philosophy versus sort of the the wild, violent frontier. Yeah. And you're put in the mindset of thinking that this is the conflict. It is the civilization versus the untamed nature of space. And then once Crawl's true nature is revealed, it's it's no, it's actually our past literally fighting against our better future. Quite literally in the fact that two captains are punching each other, stopping momentarily to discuss philosophy as they struggle with a magic space and science doodad, which that whole sequence just made me giddy and that, that is very, very Trek. But I do agree that if they moved that sort of reveal up, then that could have been, rather than a singular moment between the captains, that could have been a huge payoff of a couple other moments that we get to see with their opposing viewpoints contrasted more effectively. So our primal, tribal, warlike nature against our technologically advanced future selves espousing unity, there's almost an idea for a book series in that. Just a little bit. Takes down notes. <laughs> you, you do kind of have there a, a philosophical base for the idea that the advancement of the frontier is not through the dimension of distance, but through the dimension of time. Mm. But in actual fact, you don't have to go anywhere. But as time progresses, you will automatically advance. And you see that in Kral, that he has advanced, inverted commas, in, through the process of, of age into this very dehumanised creature. And, I mean, I, I did wonder, because, I mean, Alex, you picked up so quickly on where they were going with that. Mm -hmm. And I did wonder whether it would seem so obvious to somebody who hadn't already seen Insurrection. Ooh. Or at least hadn't seen Insurrection so recently, because yeah. I I didn't catch on to that nearly as quickly as I probably should have. But the other thing that, that works really well with Krull, I think, is the way it contrasts his use of other characters versus Kirk's reliance on other characters. Because yeah. you know we, we do see them get to interact a little bit, but we also do see them interact with other people a great deal. And Kirk is so reliant on his crew and so protective of his crew and Crawl is, is literally consuming everything around him to fuel his goal, whereas one of the big centerpiece moments in action, you know, shortly after Crawl just disposes of someone, and after someone says, go ahead and leave, I'll take care of this, and it's like, yeah, that person's basically going to die to ensure that Crawl continues their mission. Kirk's big action moment with the bike is to literally put himself between enemy fire and his crew and create a wall around them. It's, again, it's at the very good 
way of, of showing these two different philosophies that didn't quite get enough time. But I think when you when you look for them closely, there's a lot of them sprinkled in there. Again, it advances that idea of unity versus the individual and the fact that ultimately you you need to find a balance because it's the the unity that the Federation was so determined to pursue that meant that they could just forget about that ship that landed off somewhere that we don't really want to go look for them. And the idea of those survival traits that Kral values so highly, they will keep you in a state of, of arrested development because if you're fighting purely for survival, you can't advance. You need the unity of generation after generation to really be able to evolve and progress. And if you as an individual are simply preserving your own life as long as possible, you can't evolve. You as an individual can't evolve. One thing that they definitely do kind of hammer home the unity as the message here, and that was, you know, Simon Pegg specifically wanted to deconstruct Star Trek in the 50th year, which I thought was great. But I think one of the things that the movie also does that sort of subtle is that it's not just unity. It is unity in diversity. It is a lot of different people coming together. Because keep in mind... Krull's minions are called bees, and in fact, they do use their unified, the thing that they use to unify themselves, the bees, against them in the climax of the film. They do, but all of them are exactly the same, which is why they're able to use that one signal to reach all of them. Yeah, again, Yorktown, one of the best things about it is that you see that it's a very diverse place, that there are all sorts of aliens and humans and people of different locations and backgrounds and sexual orientations all together, and that's what makes them strong. Crawl basically just sort of forces everybody into his mold. This. For a lot of them, just they're just all wearing the same armor. Yeah. It's very uniform. There's a lot of this coming up in New Century. It's that I'm kind of amazed at how much Star Trek managed to infiltrate my book, considering that I've not grown up a Star Trek fan. It's, it's clearly had a, more of an impact on me later in. Maybe that's one of the things I like so much about it. Eh, thank you. I also noticed while I was watching this that that's two Shere Khans they've bested. Because the, the next Jungle Book film that's coming out has uh, Benedict Cumberbatch playing Shere Khan. This, uh, Idris Elba playing Shere in, in, in this one. It's Doctor Strange and Heimdall from Thor. It's Luther and Sherlock from TV. And it's the voice I used for Mohawk and the voice I used for Seth in New Century. So... <laughs> Star Trek villains, they have a type. Okay, so somebody back in the mists of time was going to mention Jayla. Oh. Fight the power! She is the best, and I want to watch three more movies about her. <laughs> <laughs> she 
she's I've heard uh, people going, she was great. I've heard people going, oh, she sucked. So those people are wrong. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I spent I spent about two hours afterward trying to figure out, kind of pinpoint exactly what I liked about her. I'm like, well, she's a good fighter, but she's not the best fighter in the universe. And she clearly has some engineering knowledge and she's self-taught. So she's very smart, but she's not, you know, a, in the universe. Yeah, exactly. And then it occurred to me after about two hours, like, wait a minute. She's a well-rounded character. Yeah. That's what I was trying to put my finger on the same time. So She's talented, thing. but not a prodigy. Yeah, exactly. And since, unfortunately, we will not get Anton Yelchin back for the next oh. film, I would be very happy to see her step into Chekhov's place. Oh. Mm. Particularly, particularly since the, the one vibe that I got from her more than anything else is the idea that she's young. Yeah. The idea that I kind of got the impression I'm not, quite sure of the time frame so i don't know if this works but that when her people crashed there she may even have been a child i don't know how long she's been living there oh yeah no i got that too yeah uh-huh. but that was something that that really felt like it had a big impact on how i was viewing the rest of the cast because the first two films even into darkness i was sort of feeling that they're all still quite youthful and they're not that long out of the academy and they haven't quite proved themselves yet. And her presence here really made it feel like they'd all stepped up an age group and that they're now at the point where they are the mature adults who are going out into the universe to expand their frontier, as it were, but that they also have a lot that they now need to start passing on to the next generation. And that seemed to be what she was there to represent. Indulge me, if you will, for a second. I am not a fan of any of the TNG films. It always seemed like they were trying to squash the philosophical moral dilemma crew of that series from TV onto cinema screens where people wanted to see action. So what you ended up with was 50-somethings creakily running about the place going, Mr. Wolf, shoot that man with your laser gun. And, <laughs> and like, you know, they're not good at action. Those are not good action movies. Uh, loads of people love First Contact. I'm like, I, I, there's nothing about any of – do you know the only one I like is Generations. I've said that before. But not for its action. It made me realize that the point of the TNG movies should actually have been – for the next generation to train the next generation. You get a bunch of new recruit cadets for the first film, uh, maybe the second film after Shatner's gone elsewhere, and you basically spend three movies training them up to be the main crew so that the, the crew that we love are still there doing the thing that they do best but also that you know they're using their experience while the young kids get to run around the place shooting off laser guns. And so we get that wonderful blend of Star Trek that will appeal to as many people as possible without dumbing it down. So I, that, it feels like a massive missed opportunity if you look at what the, what the Trek movies were doing in the 90s relative to what they were doing in the 80s, where they just kind of didn't really have a handle on it. And they weren't making that much money. And they didn't really feel like they fit with the TV shows either. Like The, the biggest problem I have with First Contact is that the, Mr. Plinkett pointed this one out. In the TV series, Picard shows mercy to the Borg and actually seeks to reach out to them and... and to, to understand them a little bit better. Whereas in First Contest, he's like, no, no! It's <laughs> like, we've got to kill every single one of them. That's not Picard <laughs> at all. And this is me understanding that, you know, retrospectively. Those movies failed to grasp everything that was important about the TV show. And which... also had a, I'm sorry to interrupt, but it also had kind of a, how do you do fellow kids 
vibe whenever trying to do action. Uh, especially space dune buggy. Like this. <laughs> yeah, something like this, the space dune buggy. And all I compare it back to Beyond for a second, where we essentially get a surfing scene. And I think oh. we can all agree that surfing is inherently cool. Mm-hmm. But they do it within the context of Star Trek and still works. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Rather than in the context of James Bond and a CGI Pierce Brosnan, which does not work. <laughs> the, the idea of something like the, the older generation, next generation crew, having someone like Will Smith and Lucy Liu or someone come in to be the, the new lieutenants or ensigns who are doing the action bits would, would have been so much more... I, I think that Did would have been a Will Smith in Star Trek? Well... Do I want to see this film now! Yeah. Damn it, man! <laughs> Sorry. Very sincere welcome to Earth. (laughs) (laughs) No, you can't just punch them, Will. (laughs) He can. He has the Will Smith powers. That also would have smoothed things over. I think the the messy break-off from Nemesis through to Trek 09, we never had a chance to say goodbye. Even just one movie where the creaky old TNG crew got to basically still prove their worth and got to be the Han Solo in um, Force Awakens, and just sort of bring in the new kids, that would have given us what the old Trek fans wanted to see, and that would have given us, you know, what the new children, you know, coming up and going, oh, what's this Trek thing about? Oh, actually, these old guys are pretty cool. I just, I think that we, we could maybe have had that after Nemesis, but before Trek 09. There was no faith in the series. Nemesis tanked. Mm-hmm. That would have helped smooth things over with the fans. And I, I actually hadn't even thought of that passing of the baton as much in relation to Jayla and beyond. But I did – one of the things I did appreciate about her character was sort of related to to how she functions in that sense. And that, for one, even though she is played by Sofia Batella, who is a quite attractive young lady, and even though she is made up to look like a, an alien but not a spiky alien who we're not supposed to find pleasing to look at at all – she is never objectified in any way in the entire movie. I, I don't think there's a single example of lingering male gaze in a yeah. movie directed by the guy who perfected male gaze in the Fast and the Furious movies, ironically yeah. enough. <laughs> I think Justin Lin got handed that for Tokyo Drift. He was like, right, Justin, we're going to need you to have these sexy parties where <laughs> where sexy girls dance around. And Justin was like, okay, right, yeah, we'll put that in one scene. And then they moved on. I mean, Justin and we're going to make a joke out of it too. Yeah, Justin, like the first two, most definitely had this kind of, hey, mommy, we got all these sexy ladies. When they turn up in three, four, five, six, and seven, it's a little bit kind of a, let's just chuck that one in. And that there's even a bit in, is it five? Where Vin Diesel looks at Paul Walker and goes, he <laughs> <laughs> does. Yes, like butthead. But it's like, those, those are just sort of like, here's one for you guys. And then we're going to move away. I mean, it's, it ain't like Michael Bay where he's like, look, here's a beautiful new girl for you. I've pretty much stuck the camera up her anus. You're welcome. <laughs> well, it, it's in a way that feels appropriate to the street racing scene and the very surface level glamor and all that. Yeah. But, but, but it's even fleeting. To, it is, but but even compared to the way that we do get to see, you know, hot green chicks in their underwear in the first two Star Trek yeah, movies yeah. in the reboot, there's none of that. Like the sexiest sexy body shot in this movie is Chris Pine mid frame in a Marvel shot of like, hey, check out those pecs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh-huh. 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 But whenever there's talk about, and they even they even spend a bit of the time talking about sex in relation to the crew, it's in a very matter of fact. This is just the way society is. Way oh, yeah. it's not 
it's not a huge, big, you know, thing. It's just, it's kind of the way that Sulu, yeah, he's got a daughter. Yeah, his daughter's with another man. There's even a bit where you see the the classic shot of three guys and three girls pass each other, and the guys turn their heads around to look at, hey, there's pretty girls, except one of the girls is actually a guy. So you're like, wait, was that guy checking out a guy's butt or a girl's butt? We don't know. It doesn't matter. It's the future. They just do that. Again, just like Mass Effect, it just happens. It hey, just happens. No one makes yeah. note of it, and well done on both their counts. It's worth pointing out, and this is one of the things that kind of took the edge off uh, watching Beyond for me. Only a little bit, but it made me sad that George Takei, on finding out that Sulu in this was gay, disapproved. He said that Gene Roddenberry hadn't originally intended for that to be the case, and they worked out a whole, you know, life lifetime for Sulu in his uh, his personal life, and and that that actually wasn't the case. And Takei is a massive lifelong advocate for uh, for gay rights, and it just made me think. I get your point, and you feel very possessive about this character, but young gay men and women need to be able to look at identif- identifiable characters that people know and love, and go. But Sulu's gay, and that's fine. I feel a little bit better about myself. As opposed to, and here we have introduced a new character named Jayla, and she's gay, and that's okay. Which is also great, but it's almost like they've added a token gay. That was Simon Pegg's actual argument, and he was talking about it. He was saying, George Takei wanted a new character if they were going to introduce a gay character. Mm. Simon Pegg's argument was that if you introduce a new character, then that character will be about being gay as opposed yeah. to Sulu, who we've had several movies. Who's about being Sulu. Of, about just being Sulu. And I, I get, as a comic book guy, and specifically as an Archie comic guy, I can't help but think of Kevin Keller, mm. who is one of the best Archie characters. He's well-rounded, he's funny, he's clever, and he's still kind of known in the mainstream as the gay kid in Riverdale. I'd always uh, kind of assumed that Sulu was gay anyway, even though I found out he had a daughter in Generations. It was just like, well, gay people can have children. That's, yeah. that's fine. So it's it's not like it shattered my vision of Sulu at all. I, I, honestly, that just seeing that they, that them together, I was like, that is so sweet. Yeah. And I really hope that that makes people feel better about themselves yeah. and that there, there needs to be more yeah. of that. Sulu's husband, by the way, mm-hmm. co-writer Doug Young. There you go. Mm-hmm. So... But it, it it made me sad that that because I, I put myself in Peg's shoes, you know, having written this and going right, we're gonna we're gonna make this step of calling up George and expecting George to go, thank you, and instead going, no, I don't like that, and just like the the sinking feeling of oh shit, how do I even respond to this? Because I I also respect to Kay's point of view with the, the idea that yeah. you know this is a character who has always been heterosexual up to now. But, I mean, it happens in comics all the time as well. Guy Gardner, not Guy Gardner, Green Lantern. I think you're right, it is Guy Gardner. Is he? Oh, is he gay as well? Okay, Alan, Alan no, no, Scott. No, 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 you're right, it's Alan, Alan Scott. Alan Scott, the yeah. original Golden Age Green Lantern was re- re-envisioned as a, a, a new character who was gay. There was a big fu- furor about it, then so they moved on to something else. The more that characters are reimagined in this way, everyone makes a fuss and then move on to something else, the more normal it will be, the less people will eventually make note of it until eventually we get this future where it's just a thing. Yeah, when they did it with Bobby in X-Men, it was less of a thing than when they did it with Guy Gardner, and Mm. I think Iceman is probably a more well-known character. Yeah, Alan Scott, I I made you say the wrong thing. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) It's the Daredevil soundtrack all over again. (laughs) His best soundtrack. It has Beastie Boys on. 
Anyway, I, what did you guys think of the Beastie Boys in there? Because I've heard people going, that was badass. And people going, that was shit. That was badass. There you go. It, it, it helps that it was my favorite. It's my favorite Beastie Boys song. Mm-hmm. That, that was part of it. But yeah, I thought I loved how they did it. It's amazing. I, for one thing, we've already established that this Kirk likes the Beastie Boys. That That's years old. I don't see why people need to make a big deal of a seven-year-old thing. We already know he likes the Beastie Boys. Right. Even- he can sit around listening to classical music. And in future, I'm listening <laughs> to uh, Baby's Got Back by So Makes A Lot. Yep. Exactly. But not only, not only is it something that's established as part of a character, not only is it used in a way that feels very Star Trek. It was like, okay, we need to do a thing with a signal to do this thing. It's very sort of made up science, but still like feels putting like putting too much air in a balloon. It was, the, it yeah. was the the classic Star Trek <laughs> way of simplifying something into something really fun that would make you go, "Science is fun," and being smart <laughs> about it. But then it's also when the actual needle drop happens. That is one of the most effective needle drops in the last like several years in terms mm. of just a that was a Marvel moment, Marvel oh, yeah. level yeah. moment of triumph. That was really good. In fact, like overall, I would say that Star Trek Beyond might be one of the best Marvel movies that Marvel hasn't actually made. Oh, nicely done. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Between, be the, between the humor and the and the way it's paced and, and all that, it, it kind of feels like it's playing with some of those same toys, mm. except not in the obviously copycat way that a lot of other movies have been trying to copy the cinematic universe. It's just that level of entertainment and effective emotion. Mm. Avengers was another great ensemble piece that didn't necessarily have to give everybody a spotlight. Just let everybody have skills, and then write the story around using those skills. Yeah. Yep. Chekhov, I, I feel like had they known, of course, they'd have given him more to do. <laughs> Obviously, had they known, they'd have made sure it didn't happen. But yeah, it makes me sad that Chekhov didn't ever really get a huge spotlight moment. He got little bits here and there throughout these three episodes. I will recommend again, Fright Night 2011. It's now one of my favorite vampire films. I ranked them. And we watched the uh, original the other day. It's one of the first films that I actually feel like the original is a pre-make of it, in that they did so many interesting, cool things with the remake that it's almost like the, the, the original was just sort of a, a run-through, uh, a dress rehearsal. And Anton Yelchin will be so sorely missed because he had such great potential oh, yeah check off the way that they've established him in these movies and particularly in beyond is as sort of the golden boy jack of all trades who is pretty good at almost everything not great at almost everything but you give him something to do and he'll figure it out and that's kind of what i loved about his portrayal in this is and that's why i say that jail is probably a good replacement for him because that's also kind of how they characterized her in this yeah i think it also helped that they paired him up with with kirk because you hadn't seen them interact a lot with each other and and that was another thing that helped kirk to feel like he advanced a little bit that he was more comfortable in his in his role as captain even though he was feeling kind of a little bit of drift, just pairing him with someone as, as who had still been very young and fresh faced, even seven years after Star Trek or nine as Anton Yelchin was, yeah. it still really drove home that this is an older version of Kirk. He's still brash and, and emotional in some of the ways that we're used to, but he's changed and he feels that partly because of who he's surrounded with. Sharon did mention this as we left though, that probably best not to work with Justin Lin. There is an 8% chance you'll die. Oh, it, it wasn't even being funny. It's just, the, it, it, it almost like he's cursed to be able to get a fantastic performance out of you. And then some horrible automobile related accident occurs. It was kind of going to say that on the podcast, though. Well, no, of course you wouldn't. But no, you did it say was, it. <laughs> it was on the set of 
It was on the set of James Wan's Fast and Furious movie. Well, not on the set. That's good During point. filming yeah. of that. Yeah. So Okay. So wh- whatever happens, James Wan must not direct Trek 4 or 14. <laughs> no. Counting. No. The Bones and Uhura story. Actually, speaking of the underused crewmen, Scotty, suddenly a much beefier role for Simon Pegg. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> but so Yes gratifying. and no. It yes was, and no. If anything, again, a lot of what Scotty would normally do, Jayla was doing. He mm-hmm. he got to be. He actually, I think, wrote himself back a little bit. Oh yeah, yeah. He he could basically have been the one that saved the goddamn day. But I did. I wasn't thinking that Simon Pegg was like. And then Scotty becomes the most important man who ever lived. It was more of an Arthur Dent type performance. Yeah, yeah he doesn't do all of the things, but we get to see more of his character bouncing off of other people which i think is possibly even more fun for an actor to get to write for themselves is i'm going to have a scene with this person and with this person and doing this stuff and listening to beastie boys Mm. and just bounce all over the place and i'm going to shoot myself out in a torpedo yeah that that was kind of amazing (laughs) i love that and actually, speaking of Jayla, there's another character in the uh, film called Kalara. She was the one who led them to the planet to uh, to get destroyed. There's a fairly simple contrast between the two of them. Jayla is honest to a fault and fiercely honorable. And Kalara did what she thought was the right thing and, and ended up dooming a lot of people to try to save her crew. I think, you know, if it's going to be making a moral judgment on either of them, it's it's probably just that the jailer finds it much easier to live with herself as someone who is straightforward. I, I do know. like her very her very straightforward attitude of, yeah. of just very yeah. bluntness. Well, Jayla's not a captain also. Mm, true. Kalara is a captain. I think she's supposed to contrast with Kirk and we're supposed to look at her and say, well, would Kirk do the same thing no, to save his crew? No, he wouldn't, obviously. But there is that sense that Kirk would do anything to save his crew. Would he do this? No, he'd find another way. Mm. And there are actually a couple of other uh, people uh, throughout the film, uh, specifically people of different alien races. The girl with the crab head that was hiding the uh, artifact, who is horribly punished for her uh, compassion, just to show what kind of an evil person Kral is and how merciless he is. Again, my kind of villains are the kind who have a line and go, actually, this is something I won't do. One thing I will say, I I didn't like actually seeing her torn apart, but I kind of liked everything leading up to that. No, listen, kind of the whole walking bit, as you can, as they're walking, Mm -hmm. they're slowly being picked off by the background. It starts with Sulu being closed off as they go into the turbo lift. Then it starts with her being closed behind the door. It's the way that crawl operates and visually... I like seeing that Crawl just naturally makes people separate around him. In fact, nice. he, defeated the Enter- he defeated the Enterprise by tearing it to pieces. Yeah. yeah by literally taking off the nacelles and then cutting its throat <clears> so that <throat> the saucer separated it. Yeah. It's how that it was happens. a traumatic line as well that cut its throat. Yeah. And you the knew last exactly thing what it meant. on that is the ship, is, is the door closing and then the separation. It's mm. very, like I said, it, it all, just whenever Crawl's around, things fall apart. Yeah. Unfortunately, then we had to watch somebody get torn apart by ugh. space things. Yeah. yeah. Evil space things. Apparently, it's biological. I don't yeah. know where they got that from, but sure, biological weapon. Take it. I appreciated that they didn't tear apart because they could actually have just straight up destroyed a good chunk of Yorktown and didn't. And it kind of it contrasts with the needless destruction at the end of Into Darkness. Yeah. This is the second time you have Justin Lin doing a movie the same year as Zack Snyder doing a, a comic book movie where in one of them there's a whole bunch of needless, senseless destruction. In the other mm-hmm. one, Justin Lin's characters are actually trying to get innocent people out of the way. You know, the yeah. same sort of thing happened even with even with the car thieves in Furious 7. They're like, get his attention away from the people. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. I didn't even think of that, but yeah, that's right. Or I'm sorry, uh, Fury Six. That's that was the one you did. That's my favorite of them. With the, with the tank. Yeah. Actually, I hadn't even seen five when I decided that having you know what I'd seen in Tokyo Drift, that if they swapped out Michael Bay for Justin Lin for the next Transformers film, suddenly you got a Transformers film that everybody really likes. Oh, see, that's never going to happen. I'm I'm sorry. I'm sorry. These things just come to me. (laughs) But I mean, like, he's got the pedigree. He could totally friggin' do it. Oh, well. Any more on the end? Because the next question I'm going to ask you is to rank the Trek films or like rather than all of us going through and ranking them, just just generally how we feel about them. One through 13. As far as the end goes, you know, I, I kind of talked about how I really appreciate the way that you see more and more of, yeah, it should have come earlier, but I, I like seeing what we saw of, of crawl and, and the way we get to see him contrast with Kirk in their final scene. Mm. There's something that I think could have gone either way with that character, because there's a beat where I was wondering if he was going to try to continue fighting Kirk and do the thing, or if he was actually going to try and see Kirk's point of view and have more of a swaying the bad guy to my point of view ending where maybe he tries to help him with the lever or grabs the the thing as it's activating to slow it down so Kirk can have another moment to take care of it and, and die saving lives instead of live with taking. Yeah. I don't I don't know if it would have worked without us seeing a lot more of Krull's character earlier in the movie, but it's at least a beat where you can see him looking at this floating piece of glass where you see his reflection that's more human than it has been in a long time. Yeah. And it's like they're giving him a moment to make the choice of whether or not to continue fighting or to help save people. But he doesn't, which just makes Kirk look more good as a man again, which we've already know. We are, we've seen Kirk literally die for people. So ultimately, yeah. Kirk and Uhuru, because that would have been instrumental in the development of Kral as a character, could have inspired this lost soul into being able to become more of himself again. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. But yeah, that's that's what I was hoping for. Didn't get... I didn't go, oh no, they buggered the whole thing up. But it was kind of an, oh, well, I suppose this is just the... He felt a bit Bond villainish at that point. A little bit. One thing I wish was just that I actually kind of really, really wish that there could have been just some way that he could have just gotten away if there's one you just brought up bond villain if there's one bond villain that gets that gets away it's blofeld i always was kind of wishing that you know what this would be you know if khan's out of the picture for the moment that this would be a good antagonist to come up down the line for kurt maybe if like this was what the the third film maybe if you had a fifth or sixth one kral could have made some sort of reappearance or had Idris Elba in his, you know, his human form appear and appear as some sort of nemesis. No pun intended with Star Trek nemesis. Khan and Kral team up. The two sheer Khans. Oh. Ooh. Nice. The, the deep voices would shake apart theaters all over the yeah. nation. <laughs> I would want to hear that happen.
Okay, so actually, in ranking the uh, Trek films, rather than like trying to get it down to precise numbers, I'll, I'll name the film, you just go high, low, or medium. And I think, I suspect we're going to be mostly all pretty similar. Just like, if you imagine that like, the high would be like the top five, the low would be the bottom five, and the medium would be the three in between. So maybe four, four, and five. <laughs> This is kind of a nice mirroring of the fact that when we started on the uh, Trek 09, we went through the original films going through. But just with the perspective that these last ones have given us. Okay, so the motion picture. Low. Anyone else higher than low? I, I kind of high for me. No, I would have to see the, the director's cut again. I, I would go towards medium just mm-hmm. because I, I did appreciate a lot of the ambition that that film had. So mm-hmm. I would go medium with... I would have to see the director's cut again. What does the director's cut add to it? It it tightens a lot of things up, and they they redid a lot of the effects for for the DVD release a few years ago. It's actually hard to find on Blu-ray now because when they redid the effects, they redid them for standard definition. So they would have to completely redo everything for HD. Right. Okay. Sharon, you were saying that you rank it quite highly? Yeah, I think on reflection I might have to move it to medium because otherwise that doesn't give me anywhere to go and hmm. there are others that I like much better than that one. But yeah, I think there's, it's one where it seems like they were deliberately trying to evoke the show and then they abandoned it when they realised that wasn't really what anybody wanted. I, I, I don't think, like, I didn't watch that film and go, you know what the problem here was? The effects. The, uh, <laughs> well, they, they redid the whole of Highlander 2 for the ultimate edition. They pasted on all new effects, and it was like the, the problem was not the effects the first time around. The motion picture is actually pretty highly praised by uh, a, a lot of fans for actually being a really good feature length Star Trek story. It's very cerebral. The pacing is the problem for me. If there was a tighter, more of a driving force film than that, I, I'm, I would love to see that version of it. So I'm probably going to track down the director's edition anyway. It looks like you can get it here for about six pounds. So I'll, I'll check that one out. Thank you. It's uh, Starship porn. I also, I uh, yeah, this will check out them nacelles. <laughs> <laughs> also, I mean, I love the fact that they got the, the poster, that, that homage to the uh, original motion picture. Yes. Poster for, for oh, this that one. Beautiful. That's wonderful. Okay, so Wrath of Khan. Hi. Hi. <laughs> no explanation required. Search for Spock. Hi. We know why you love it. I, I love I it. It's probably on the edge of high for me. I would rank it close to high, maybe not quite as high as, uh, you know, high, medium, or low high. <laughs> if that makes any sense. No, 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 it does. It does. Yeah. It does. Yeah. I'm right there with you, actually. Yes. That's, that's where <laughs> We're on fine it. gradings now. <laughs> uh, yeah, actually, I, I, I gave it a, a low high as well. So, yeah, I completely concur with that. Uh, Voyage Home. High. High. High for me. Medium. High, medium. <laughs> See, go. all of these have gone high or medium or high, medium. So, yeah, okay. Then not, not a bad it's start a, to a series. Indeed. it's a Voyage is a lot of fun, mm. but the, there are bits of it that I just found a little bit too silly. It is. I love how silly it gets. It's yeah. one of my favorites. But yeah, was that the one where, where double uh, dumbass on you? Nimoy puts a headband on and suddenly he's a karate. He, he tears a strip <laughs> off his robe and ties it round oh, his yes. head so no one can see his ears. And also he knocks out that punk, which uh, everybody cheers him on. That is exactly yeah. smack bang in the middle of my list. There are six above and six below, so uh, that's Voyage Home. Final Frontier number five. Low. 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 <laughs> Ooh. No explanation required. Check out the We Hate movies on Star Trek V, Final Frontier. The one where he tries to give a, a lift to God and then ends up getting in a fist fight with him because that 
That's a completely normal sentence. <laughs> and six, the undiscovered country. Christopher Plummer and Hi. Yep. Hi. 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 That was actually the first Trek movie I ever saw in theaters, and <laughs> it, I, it, I think it's a a very good send off for for the original group. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I love that bit at the end where the the the, the very sweet sort of send off and the little autographs. That's what the next generation never got to do. And I've said this one before, they really needed to be able to have that. And yeah, I, I give that sort of a medium for me. Medium for me as well. Yeah. The actual, the, the story itself is pretty intriguing. Again, it feels like an extended, um, maybe a two-parter of the original uh, series or the mm-hmm. TNG. Yeah. Actually, it's, it, it feels like TNG because they were sharing sets with TNG by that point. Generations. Medium. Medium, yeah. Medium. Medium. Okay. First contact. Bearing in mind, it's Warmonger Picard. It's it's in the medium level for me, and the more I watch it, the lower it kind of goes. It's like reading Ender's Game for me. The more I read it, the more I hate it. Oh right. So I try not to I try not to watch First Contact that much anymore. Also, I pretty much just heard you say that and went no, no, and smashed his (laughs) trophy count. (laughs) Yes. So carry on. Like he could take it out on you could take it out on people in the holodeck all day if if that's what he wants to do swing from conduits or whatever he's doing these days at seventy years old. <laughs> that's the one where Picard has a Tommy gun and like blasts yeah. a bunch of Borg apart <laughs> with his Tommy gun, going, ah, <laughs> "Keep the change, you filthy animals!" <laughs> it shows off his biceps, which we had to get Picard in a tank top again, seventy year old man in a tank I top. I see you managed to get your shirt off. Yeah. <laughs> I think if we're going to cover any other Star Trek film anytime soon, it might be First Contact, but it'll be more of this stuff, so fans of it might not want to hear. So, <laughs> Someone else is going to say something about First Contact? For me, it's kind of, it's weird. It's high-ish, sort of low-high as a film, mm-hmm. but it being a Star Trek film and, a, as you say, it being Warmonger Picard kind of knocks it down into medium. Okay. It's, I have it, like, at the beginning of the bottom. Only okay. The, it's, it's just weird because I prefer the motion picture and Generations over it. Over yeah, me too. We'll probably find that controversial, but yeah. Yeah, I think probably quite a few Trek fans will agree with you, especially if they think hard about Warmonger Picard. Okay, so nobody's favorite, Star Trek Insurrection. I loved this when I walked out of the theater and then I rewatched the episode in season seven. That was the same thing, only the other solution. And now it just pisses me off so low. Mm. (laughs) I loved this the first time I saw it, like really loved it. And why? I don't know. I was very young. Um, it's it's the, fun and it's exciting, mm-hmm. the, and I I really liked the the sort of the idea of them being this isolated community that didn't necessarily want to have anything to do with the technological advancement. But now the more I watch it, the more smug they seem and the more annoying it gets. <laughs> F. Murray Abraham heard that we all rank it low and went, yeah, that's what he does. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and there's that guy who gets like put in the face squashing machine. Also, like there's that fight in the the thing at the end, and it's they're all there's like a blue background, and it's almost like they were going to put something in in the in and they forgot, and then they forgot, and then someone said you didn't put it in the background. I was like, ah, no one will care. Director Wait. Jonathan Frakes. No thanks. No thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, Nemesis. Shat pants. Shat. <laughs> Anybody else for any any advances on shat pants? <laughs> I think that says it all. That's my third lowest. Insurrection's lower, and then Final Frontier at the bottom. 
same as same here. I, I just like hate the idea of Shinzon, the fact that it is, is kind of Wrath of Carney. It's sort of doing some things. Ron Perlman in Super Makeup, I always love. Yeah. See, for me, it, it feels like such a waste of Ron Perlman and Tom Hardy and, and the fact that it could have been a, a send-off for the TNG crew. Yeah. But it, it just it just scuttles everything that it could have used and is such a weak fart to end the next-gen series on. I, I kind of rank it lower because of what it failed to do than the movie that it actually is yeah but it just makes me so mad plus whose idea was it to end the series with basically data for all intents and purposes data still being around but losing all of his memories someone named rick Rick. (laughs) yeah it's essentially it's essentially the sacrifice that data made was both wiped out and we don't get to keep data yeah nobody wins yeah. You don't get the wonderful poignant moment. It's sort of a half step. Lyra watched the uh, TNG films all in a weird order. So she was like, hang on, how is Data still alive? And I was like, oh, no, that, this is before he did that. But he would still be alive, but just without his memories. Forget it. <laughs> You're ending your explanation with forget it, then the film has failed. Yeah. She quite likes Generations, as I recall of them but no she prefers the uh, the original crew more but I'll, I'll make sure that she watches some of the best tng episodes as she gets older star trek 09 new star trek number one high. wow number one I'm, as well high medium or low high somewhere in there it, it's it's really fantastic i think okay for me it's a an emotional high and then if i look at the story and the the logic and the the series of coincidences too long it becomes a medium but just as, as a film, I think it overall works high in regards to the other Star Trek films. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Into Darkness. Middle. S- solid medium. There was a time when it would have been low, and I talked with all of you, and I reevaluated it. I like it a lot now. Nice. Yeah, I managed to find a lot of positives on that one. So I, I would rank it a medium. I, I would definitely rank it lower than, than Star Trek 09 and lower than a lot of my favorite original series movies. But... I, I think I would rank it above uh, above a lot of the other ones as well. Mm-hmm. It's certainly nowhere near the the worst Star Trek movie ever that a lot of people were saying when it first started experiencing some blowback, I think. See, I was going to say they could still do that TNG film where all the old TNG crew come back and train the new recruits. They'd be very, very old, but they could still sort of do it. But it would just mess with the continuity. People would be like, hang on, what about the earlier Kirk and Spock and... You know, regular people don't do well with things like in- involving lots of time travel. I'd rather see a DS9 movie. Yeah, yes, that's please. another thing people really wanted. They wanted a DS9 or a Voyager, and they, they always feel like they never yeah. got that, which is understandable. Yeah. And Star Trek Beyond? Hi. Quite this high is, since DS9 is my favorite, I'm going to say I'd like it as much as something like The Visitor episode-wise. It's not quite in the pale moonlight, but what is? Overall, I found that this was both a really good use of a, a feature-length episode structure while still feeling like it had far bigger stakes and bigger character beats because they did so well with paying off characters that they'd established earlier. It didn't feel like it artificially had to put the whole Earth in danger just to make things feel like they mattered. And what, one thing that I really have not so much a problem with but an observation about with, with Abrams' movie is that I feel like Star Trek 09 sort of peaks a little bit at the very, very beginning with George Kirk's sacrifice as far as the emotional high of that film. Whereas I think that the emotional high of Star Trek Beyond is absolutely more towards the end where it feels natural in terms of the building to a climax. 
So it, it kind of leaves me with the most recent, you know, the most recent point in the story being the high to end on, as opposed to coming down off an emotional high for the entire film. Mm. Actually, another thing, like instead of Star Trek Insurrection, Star Trek Nine: Mischief of Q. Why wasn't Ooh. that a film? <laughs> Seriously, Q would be a, a great cinematic villain to have people go, this guy's really great. I should go and check out those episodes. And he can do literally anything. You have yeah. carte blanche. Yeah. So you can have a completely crazy Star Trek film. Don't necessarily have to have Picard in a tank top. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody else in Star Trek Beyond and where it stands? For me, it is, it's, it's just edged out into darkness in terms of Second. the... the Three. Um, oh, well, you put in search for Spock number two, number I mean, one. No, of the of the. Hang on, hang on. I meant specifically of the <laughs> of, of the, the three rebooted. new ones. Okay. Yeah. So I think I would say I would say my top five is probably Into Darkness. In beyond. reverse order. Yeah, in reverse order. Into Darkness, Beyond, New Trek, Wrath of Khan, Search for Spock. Whoa, Wrath the number two and Search for wow. Spock number one. Okay, yeah. it's, cool. it's pretty damn. Close, I will say that it's it's there's there's a bit of a gap between Into Darkness and then the other four, and the the first four are extremely close together. Mm. But I get how you said that Khan and Search are like a duo; they play well next to each other. They do. And there was apparently just some some fan debate when Search for Spock came out as to was this a better movie than Wrath of Khan because both were very well received upon Mm. release immediately and. And so there were a lot of people saying, oh, this one's better. Oh, this one's better. So it was actually, mm. it wasn't just always a clearly two was the best forever as everyone always saw. Mm-hmm. Anybody else on Beyond? I like the beats and shouting. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think that's probably us done. Next Star Trek, I mean, it's taken three years to get from our original 09 episode to, to now, because we, we skipped doing Into Darkness until now. I would imagine at some point in the next three years, we might do First Contact if you really want to hear us do it. But I think we've, we've covered a lot of what Star Trek is really about. And I think there's a nice range if you look for, back back through all those movies of you know that there's there's particularly good action ones, but you know some really quite good cerebral ones. I'm always going to lament the fact that TNG never really had their chance to shine and really to bring what that show was about because I missed out on that when I was a kid, and I think I probably would have been more receptive to it had it turned up in the cinema, really wearing that on its sleeve. And I think that the new Star Trek films have in fact brought that forwards, at least the, the idea that there can be a brighter future, a literally brighter future, in a way that's actually inspiring. And whilst in the 60s we were in a new time where diversity was being explored and women's rights were being explored and the idea of a utopia being an achievable thing could be laid down for fans of sci-fi it's tough nowadays to actually lay down utopias for a younger crowd they gel they seem to be gelling much better with the friggin hunger games and the the idea that there's going to be these these horrible totalitarian governments that'll treat everyone like shit and considering that it's actually quite a huge achievement that they managed to get across the idea that we can be a better people in these new Star Trek movies. I feel that that is actually the case. I never actually watched them and thought, oh, this is this is just, you know, it's, it's completely lost the, the, the point of what the, the Star Trek could be. Having said that, I can understand the ire towards them, and I do hope that that eases off in the coming years, and that maybe the fourth one will be better received. And like I said, Bones, Uhura, they need their time to shine now. 
Agreed. Well, I mean, they're going to be bringing back Chris Pine. Uh, Chris Pine? No, they're going to be one of the Chrises. <laughs> Chris Hemsworth as George Kirk in the fourth one. Seriously? So that, That's one of the things yes. they're battering around. Yeah. yeah. How he's now he's he will be more than ten years older than when he was. Oh, will he be like an alt reality George Kirk who never died in that period? Maybe. That would be my guess. One of the thoughts that someone had was a bit where the Star Trek crew finds an alternate timeline where George Kirk never died and James Kirk sacrifices his future to set things right so that George Kirk never died or, or something in kind of days of future past it. I don't know. That that might be a bit much. But yeah, they're, that's one of the things they're bantering about. Is, See, Days of Future Past smart. undid a bunch of shit X-Men films. Undoing that would undo one of the best beats in modern Star Trek. It would. And it would undo all of the really great stuff in Star Trek Beyond as well. So I think that would be kind of a shame. But yeah. I don't know. Maybe they're just doing time travel in the fourth one because they did time travel in the fourth one last time. I don't know. I would be far more interested in seeing Jim Kirk from the far, far future of this new timeline played by William Shatner. He hasn't shown up yet. He hasn't, and I wanted to get him before the Reaper does. Yeah, so. before 2016 does. <laughs> Back off 2016, he's ours. Not this one. Well, we Not just gave today. Him Jerry Doyle. We just gave him Jerry Doyle that 2016's going to be full for a little while. <laughs> <laughs> Christ. Okay. I was morbid, I'm sorry. Yeah, okay. Yeah, 2016 is, a, is a, a ravenous hell beast that will eat everyone that we love and care about. And on that bombshell... <laughs> Okay, thank you guys so, so much for coming on to talk about Trek, and it's been great fun. I was kind of trepidatious about doing this one because I was like, I don't want to tread on people's toes. But there are some things that had to be said, and I think I've got pretty balanced arguments out of this one, and we did Beyond Justice. So, would you like to pimp your stuff, Brendan, first? Yeah, I do the Day One podcast. There's a video game arm of that. I'm on the Cinema Central arm of that that does movies. Our our thing is is we look at a lot of movies that thematically or conceptually pair well together. We're on a little bit of a summer break, but we're going to be coming back with the Back to the Future trilogy and then doing things like I'm I'm kind of hoping to pair something like Big Trouble in Little China with a, a more modern spin on something like that, maybe Guardians of the Galaxy or we do things like that. We'll look at things that kind of parallel conceptually like winter soldier and three days of the condor mm. so you can find that on itunes at, at day one podcast or you can look up day one podcast on soundcloud and all that stuff Cowardoo. all right my main thing that i do is sequentially yours i do close readings and analysis of comic books that's at sequentially yours.com the dash is important i also do comic book videos for infinity arc on youtube and by the time this comes out, you'll be able to find my written stuff at EclipsePopCulture.com. And that's movie and comic book reviews and editorials. And Eric Jones. You can find me at the Deacon's Den blog. That's where I write about movies, TV, comics, all sorts of things like that. It's Deacon's Den, all one word, dot wordpress.com. And if you want to hear me talk more Trek, there's a podcast I do called The Essentials with Jake Alman of the Waxing Cinematic Podcast, and we currently we cover two episodes of Star Trek: The Original Series per episode. So right now we we've only got two completed right now. But if you want to hear me talk more Trek, just search for the Waxing Cinematic Podcast and you and look for the episodes titled The Essentials. 
I'm going to add that to the notes so that I can put a link to that. Thank you, Eric. And thank you. Very much. What was it like coming on this show for the first time? You know, for the fact that I listen religiously to your podcast, I still, <laughs> I, you know, but it's still the, you know, even though I've done some before, there's still the little jitters, you know, at first, you know, you and Sharon have you know, done this so well and that, you know, coming on for, as a first timer, I just want to make sure that I, you know, I don't interrupt your flow or anything like that. You did great. I, I'm sorry that I didn't ask you more stuff because you, you had some good things to say. We'll get you on again. Trust Thank me. You. Okay. And next week, I don't know, because if you've been listening to my feed, I've really, really badly hurt my right arm, which is what I use to edit with and write with. And I am my podcasting is very much up in the air right now. We shall see. I've got a whole bunch of things I want to do. I've got some a bunch of things that I've already recorded and banked and will hopefully be able to minimally edit. And I, I will keep releasing podcasts, guys, and I'll keep you updated. But I'm hurting pretty bad right now. And as a creator, it's a scary place to be. So we will figure stuff out. You will not go hungry for podcasts. And fortunately, my mouth is not affected. <laughs> I'd be really screwed then. Okay. Big thank you to Jesse Ferguson uh, for editing this episode. It is extremely hard to edit to uh, School of Movie standards. Um, by helping out like that, you've saved me a lot of literal physical pain. Thank you. So thank you very much, all of our guests. Live long and prosper. Thanks thank for you. having us. Live long and prosper. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And school's out. School's out.
sparrow flies with just the crumbs of loving civilian. I was bracing for the pain and then I let it go. I gathered all my strength and I found myself. Ooh. I hit a wall. I thought that I would work myself. Oh, I was sure your words would leave me unconscious. In on the floor, I'd be like colorless. But I hit a wall. I hit a wall. Watch the fall. You're just another break and I'm a set my room. You're just another break and I'm a set You're just another break and I'm a set my room. You're just another break and I'm a set Okay, so nobody's favourite, Star Trek Insurrection. I loved this the first time I saw it. Like, really loved it. And Why? Time, I don't know. I was very young. Um, it's it's the, fun and it's exciting. Mm-hmm. The, and I, I really liked the, the sort of the idea of them being this isolated community that didn't necessarily want to have anything to do with the technological advancement. But now the more I watch it, the more smug they seem and the more annoying it gets. So. Hang on, who are we talking about right now? The Baku. Uh-huh. So not like right. Star Trek fans, then. Oh. <laughs> oh. That, that, that's just... Cut that, please, Jesse. We'll lose our whole audience. 